Hello and welcome to the Auto Movie Intermission podcast. I'm Chris Ratcliffe and in this show we discuss cars and films and generally geek out about all things automotive in movies, TV and online. My guest today is F1 journalist, presenter and author Will Buxton. Will, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me. First question as always, what's your favourite movie or TV car of all time? This is going to be a really weird one. It's so out there. Um, it's the uh, Adams Brothers Probe 16 that was used as the Durango 95 in A Clockwork Orange. Oh, wow. That's a left-field choice, but that's an excellent one. I know, right? It's a, it's about as left-field as you could possibly get. But I'm a, I'm a massive, massive Stanley Kubrick fan. Always have been. Absolutely adore him. And Clockwork Orange is my favourite film of all time. And... Uh, the Probe 16 is just, it's such a, a, a cool, weird little idea of a car. And the fact that only three were ever made and you had to get in it through the roof. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's so great. It's so cool. And it's just, it's so of a time, of an era. The Adams Brothers, the, the Marcos influence um, and the whole build up to it. And actually when I was in... So a couple of years ago, I, I got to visit the Kubrick Archive, uh, which is at a university in London. And you can, anyone can just organize to go along and, and you can go and take the files out and see everything. Because when oh, he, wow. he died, he left behind all of his research all of his notes for every movie ever. And he left it to, uh, I think it's University College London. And you can go. And sure enough, there is a box. And in that are a couple of folders which are just research into the cars <laughs> for a Clockwork Orange. I'm actually writing an article about it at the moment. And it's fascinating. And, you know, what made him choose this car? What other cars did he look at through the auto shows in 1968 and 1969 that he finally, you know, and he talked to Pininfarina and he talked to Bertone and, and he landed finally on this on this probe 16 which had won all these awards for you know the, the sort of the ingenuity and beauty of its design and the futuristic nature of its design and that's what he went for so yeah i mean it's that's that's the ultimate movie car a great great choice before we get into the work that you've done and the, and the career that you've had up to this point why f1 why journalism did you always want to be a, a driver no I, do you know what? i didn't i never did i uh I grew up in in Worcestershire, and I remember going very at very very young age. One of my earliest memories, actually, is going to the Prescott Hill Climb uh, with my parents, and that was the first time I really had any knowledge or memory of of cars and competition. And I, I it just got in, it got into my body, it got into my blood from then. And I I remember on Sundays watching the Grand Prix with my dad, um, you know, while Mum cooked the Sunday lunch and all of that, or you know, did the washing up afterwards. And we you know we go and sit and watch the races, and it just became something. Like, it wasn't like Dad was a big motor racing fan. We sort of we we fell into it together, and. Um, I just remember those red and white cars flashing under the trees. So it must have been, you know, Senna and Prost at, at Monza or Hockenheim or somewhere. And and, uh, and Senna became my hero, you know, as, as I think for a lot of us of that age at that time. And he died when I was 13. So it's quite an important age, you know, sort of formative age. And none of my friends got it, you know, because they all loved football and footballers didn't fall down deads. And and none of them got it. And my dad bought me my first copy of Autosport and Murdering News that week. And I read what the journalists were saying, and they helped me 
come to terms with this huge loss of somebody that I thought was immortal. And that's when I knew what I wanted to do. I, I wanted to write about Formula One and I wanted to make the geeky, nerd, 13-year-old kid whose mates didn't really get it. I wanted them to understand, I wanted them to feel a part of something. And so that's what, what I set out to do from the age of 13 was to, to write about this thing and, and make people who loved it you know, know that it was it was something cool to like. And how did you get a break into that world? I mean, even 20 years ago, the F1 world was always seen as quite exclusive and quite a kind of closed club. How did you make that gap into that scene? Yeah, and it was before the days of, of YouTube or, or really the internet existing, in you know, certainly in the form that it does now. You know, there, there weren't blogs. You couldn't just go and, and start something and sort of formulate a voice and hope to get found it just it didn't didn't happen like that so um uh my cousin was uh, a leader writer at the times and suggested to me don't study journalism go and, and get a, a decent backup degree if the journalism thing doesn't work out but also do a, a degree that will help push you towards journalism so i studied politics which i always loved and i wrote my thesis on the politics of formula one which was total crap it was, <laughs> it was so bad i tried to argue that formula one was a nation state without territorial boundaries and there was a constitution and, and government we could learn something about this new form of, de- sort of perverse democracy that wasn't practiced anywhere else it was crap it was so bad um they nearly failed me on it uh, <laughs> anyway i went to the autosport show and it was the year that formula one magazine was launched and they're sitting on the formula one magazine stand um, minding his own business, was this journalist that I recognized as being one of those journalists that had helped me gain that that sort of presence of thought back when I was 13, David Tremaine. And I went up and I said, you're David Tremaine. And he was just like, yes, I'm David Tremaine. And I said, I really want to be a Formula One journalist. And he went, okay, well, send me a thousand words on Monday on anything that you want and let's see. And I sent him something and it wasn't great, but I think he saw there might be something there and we stayed in touch. And then he put me in touch with Joe Sabard, who helped me with my thesis. I started writing a little bit for Joe on Grand Prix.com. And when I graduated university, I was working in a bar in Farnham, uh, a wine bar in Farnham, uh, which, is, which is where I was living at the time. And uh, all of a sudden, I got a phone call from David in November, I think November, December time. And he said, we're writing the annual, because it knows that they have, have a Formula One annual. Um, we need some help writing the news review. Will you come in and, and help us write it? And I said, yeah. I went in, I did like 10 days work. And on the last day, I turned up with a pillow and a sleeping bag. And he said, what's that for? And I said, well, I'm not leaving. And he said, well, that's okay. We weren't going to ask you to. I was staff writer at Formula One magazine until it shut down in 2004. And then I, I bought a camper van. I freelanced for a year driving to all the races in Europe. At the end of that year, I was offered the role of press officer at GP2. I did that for three years. I came back uh, in 08 as a journalist, back to Formula One again, um, editing a, a virtual magazine. And at the end of that year, I got an opportunity to do a little bit of commentary on GP2 because I knew so much about it. And they, they drastically needed someone just to do one race. And then they said, come back for the next year. So I did the whole next year. And at the end of that year, I got a phone call from the state saying, we've heard your GP2 commentary. Do you want to be our pit reporter? And, you know, it's just weird. Like for 20 years, these crazy, amazing opportunities have just sort of appeared just from being in the right place and keeping your foot in the door and not letting it close. And it's, uh, yeah, nearly 20 years now. (laughs) 
of doing, and ending up doing TV. And and I wanted to write about Formula One. I never imagined in a million years I'd end up on television talking about it. But bizarrely, that's where we've ended up. And it's 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 magic, man. It's so, it's been so much fun. Going back about ten years, because that was a fantastic Sorry, capsule of everything that's going yeah. on. What was it like having Joe and David and what I think of as proper journalists, as mentors, as editors? I imagine they were both generous with their time and their red pen all over your copy. Oh yeah, I mean uh, Joe was amazing. When when he, I first met Joe, I uh, I, uh, I I asked him for some help with the dissertation, and he sent me fourteen thousand words, and the dissertation <laughs> was twelve thousand words. <laughs> great, uh, and I still managed to write a really crap thesis. David was the most amazing first editor you could hope for because he trained you. So do you remember those big Schlegelmilch photo books of, of all the different eras? And they all, they all had a different driver's helmet as the sleeve. Yeah. So every morning I'd go into Formula One magazine on Clark and Well Road in, uh, in London, uh, in Islington. And he, the first thing that I'd do is make a cup of coffee, sit at my desk, and he would bring one of these Schlegelmilch books over and open it at a random page and point at the photograph and say, who is that? When was that? No, all these things. And it would be like a race start and it would be Nürburgring, you know, 1978. And um, who's in third place? Why did they retire from the race? Who's in fifth? Where did they finish? And all of that. And it was it was a proper <laughs> intense introduction into into the into the knowledge that you needed. And I, I thought my knowledge was OK, but I. It was a, a real induction and just getting sent off, you know, literally being 21 years of age, getting sent off to uh, my first first time ever abroad um, working. I, I, he sent me off to Valencia to report on the Liuzzi and Pantano shootout for the Williams drive. I'd never driven on the wrong side of the road. I'd never had a hire car before. I didn't have a GPS. I just had a via Michelin used to be the website that you, you print out your directions and, and I hadn't printed out. And of course I got myself into a one way system that I couldn't get myself out of. So after two hours of driving around this city that I didn't know in a car uh, you know, with the steering wheel on the wrong side and the gear lever on the wrong side, and and all of this, you know, I knew how to drive in 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 Spain after that, but it was it was daunting. But that's that's what it was, just chucked in at the deep end and go for it. And it was God, it was good. It was just, it was such. I mean, the first interview David asked me to do was with Jody Schechter. Mm. And Jody hung up on me because he thought it was like a crank call or something because I was just all, uh, 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 you know, <laughs> the words falling out of my mouth. And, um, and he was just like, oh, that's just Jody. He's like that. <laughs> you know, oh, man, it's great days, but just, just a, a beautiful education. And I have to ask, I can only imagine the first time, like you say, you're 20, 21 years old, you get that first paddock pass, you get that first media pass, you walk into that environment. What was going through your mind? Don't look too excited. <laughs> <laughs> it was it's just joy, really. Just just such excitement, such joy, but, but absolute fear. Mm. Don't fuck it up because because you've got like one chance. And if you screw it up and you're there representing, I was there representing F1 magazine, like the official magazine of Formula One. So you're also sort of representing Bernie as well. Don't screw it up. Uh, was the big thing, and it's just so funny. Like I turned up in this this 
tight little diesel t-shirt, right? And this baggy pair of cyber dog trousers with lights on the side that you could push and they would flash uh, and trainers. And Tim Newton, who was test team manager of Williams at the time, took one look at me and he goes, who are you? And I'm like, oh, I'm a journalist. I'm with F1 magazine. I'm here to do the shootout piece. Blah, blah, blah. It was like, hold on a minute. And he opened up the side of the truck and he pulled out this tarpaulin and said, put your arms out. Put my arms out. Put top on my on my arms and he found two bicycle lights put them on the top and he went right you can go make yourself another pair of trousers <laughs> and i was like okay okay if this is what it's like this is going to be really great and um, it was it was so cool it was so cool going from years of writing and if you've ever done any writing you'll know that you kind of approach it with a structure you're picking your words even if you're under pressure you're still having a sense of editing yourself as you're writing and subbing and what have you to suddenly then go from that to a commentary box to standing with a live feed how did you prepare yourself was there somebody like a mentor that took you into that world Paint the picture for us. So you're standing there in the commentary box. You've probably got a, a producer or something sort of counting down, cueing you in your ears. What have you prepared? What are you? What's your thoughts at this point? So yeah, this is this is the amazing thing. I had so I'd done three years as GP2 press officer at this point, and then I came back to being a journalist again. I was editor of GP Week, which was like this really young, really early kind of virtual magazine. And at the end of the year, we were in China. And I don't know if you remember supercars that exist, like those Euro NASCAR things that raced at a couple of F1 events with John Lacey and Johnny Herbert. Johnny Herbert was the first champion. And uh, racing alongside them was GP2 Asia. So they, they raced on the same ticket. Now, normally, the supercars provided a commentator. But this was a GP2 Asia round in, at the Chinese Grand Prix. And there were no supercars. And they suddenly realized with five minutes to go until practice that there was no, I say five, probably about half an hour to go until practice. There was no commentator this weekend. And they had a world feed for GP2 Asia that they needed a voice for. And so they said, uh, uh, what do we do? And I was very fortunate that Tony Dodgins was spotting uh, for FOM back in the day. And he said, why don't you call Will? And they were like, who's Will? They were like, oh, Will used to be press officer at GP2. He's a journalist. No one knows more about GP2 than Will. He'd be great. You know, even if just standing for the weekend, give Will a shout. So I got a call from, from FOM saying, can you come down to the broadcast center? So I went down and they said, look, we'd like you to do some commentary on GP2. I was like, okay, look, here's a set of headphones. Here's a microphone. Practice goes live in five minutes. We're not going to broadcast this, but just do it and if you enjoy it, then and, and we think it's okay, then would you be okay to come back this afternoon and do qualifying? I was like, yeah, sure, <laughs> sure. Okay. So I did practice, didn't screw it up, did qualifying, didn't screw it up. They gave me the DVD and I listened back to it that night. And then I got thrown in for my first race. I'd never done commentary in my life. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how it was supposed to be done. And then, it, well, I, me- I actually I remember I got to the end of qualifying and they were like, okay, and rap in 10, 9. And they're counting down. And I'm completely like, oh, what, what the hell is this? I've never, you know, didn't know what to do. And I said, blah, 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 from all of us here. And I want to say, like, you know, do I say goodbye? Do I say we'll see you later? Whatever. And, and I said, um, 
when, when you normally arrive, oh, it's a very warm welcome, right? And I, I just went, a very warm goodbye. And, and that's the thing. I was like, it doesn't make any bloody sense. But that became my out every time. For every commentary I ever did after that, my out was always a very warm goodbye. And I have no idea where it came from. It just, it, that was it. It just stuck. And I, I learned as I went along. I didn't have much, much guidance. And for some people, they didn't love my commentary or my commentary style because it was way too loose. It was way too opinionated. You know, it, it wasn't just commenting on the action. It was giving opinion and being pretty harsh on drivers when they screwed up or if they drove like idiots. And, you know, and some people liked it. Some people hated it. But I, I never I, I didn't really get any any instruction you know if you fouled up then then you knew about it but if you know for the most and i think the years doing pr had helped me in a way not not to foul up too much and think a little bit about what i was saying but yeah it was it it was basically learned by your mistakes i remember murray walker back in the in the day would write all of his notes the night before and I think probably had some lines or some things that he would have sort of pre-written or pre-thought of. When you got a more regular gig, I mean, was there anybody in the booth there with you? Did you start doing any sort of prep or was it watch practice, talk to people and then... Yes. So I had, um, I always had my notes on a laptop because I did it from the broadcast centre. So I did it from the gallery. If you imagine, for those who've never worked at television, the gallery is the area where you have the director and he has literally sort of 80 screens or more in front of him and he's choosing what's going to be shown. And I was on a desk at the back with the overall producer of the show. And so I, I could hear, I wasn't just getting direction from me, I was getting the world feed direction. So I knew which camera we were going to, I'd know who'd been involved in what incidents and this and that and all the other thing. Um, so I was having to deal with five or six, sometimes seven or eight voices in my ears whilst also calling the action and making sure that I'm watching the right screen and not the 80 screens in front of me. So I'm actually commentating on what people can see. And it was, it was great, but I, I, I would write my notes on my laptop so that they were backlit so that I could actually see. And I would have quick reference. I'd have, I'd have a, a, a page, I did it all in PowerPoint, a page per team so that I could just really quickly flick through with the arrows and find the reference point I needed. But because for my first year, it was just me in the commentary box, I didn't have a co-commentator to throw to. So I was very rarely looking down at my notes because it didn't matter, oh, he's had six podiums this year and what because there was never a second that I needed to fill because it was just you know sometimes I was sort of talking to myself through rain I mean, we had like a two and a half hour rain delay at Monza and I was talking to myself for like two hours and it was that was the maddest thing I think <laughs> but uh and, and, and but again you know like like I was saying with, with getting thrown into that first uh foreign trip for f1 magazine mm. it was just get thrown in and sink or swim just do it and and i loved i loved that that element of it and it's it, uh it paid off in the end because speed channel seemed to like it and the irreverent humor in it and gave me the gig as, as pit reporter off the back of it and what was it like going from a european influence company you've grown up with i'm guessing like the murray walker james hunt 
Jonathan Palmer era. Yeah. And you then go to America. What's the difference in culture like between those two in terms of the viewers, in terms of the output? Again, the weird thing was I only went to the States once before the year started. So I met the crew once, which was when they gave me the job. And then, uh, in, in fact, I had never met the commentary team until we went on air and I met them all audio rather than actually physically. So the first time I spoke to Bob Varsher and Steve Matchett and David Hobbs was in the paddock in China. Uh, and I'm standing in the pit lane and I can hear them. And then, but I couldn't hear them very well because we always, oh my goodness, it's all the lines crackling and this and that. And the engines back then as well. And the engines. And I remember I was in the pit lane and uh, I'd been reading Jerry Donaldson's Fangio biography that week. And and going on about Fangio and the Alfetta and how there was a pedal that you could push that would open duct uh, in the nose of the Alfetta, which would then feed uh, more air into the into the engine. And this was the weekend when the F duct became a thing. And all of a sudden, they I mean, it was doing a different thing, but the you know the air was going through and was stalling the rear wing. Blah, blah, blah. Mm. So we were noticing this; it was happening. And I said. It's not too dissimilar, you know, everything in Formula One's a reinvention. It's not too dissimilar to the Alfetta, you know, blah, 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 1950-whatever, Fangio, et cetera, et cetera. And Steve Matchett went, I like this guy. <laughs> and I was like, yes, I'm in. Okay, that's great. But again, it was, there was no, no lessons, very much dropped in and no producer on site. My producer was my cameraman, who was Jean-Michel Tibi, the very famous FOM cameraman who's worked with everyone and uh you know he'd worked with peter windsor before so he knew what the americans wanted and he could guide me in terms of style and and all of that but it it was quite daunting being the only person on the ground for this big network and not having a producer with you not having somebody to tell you and somebody that worked in tv that could tell you where you were going wrong so i think i again through those speed years i maybe made a lot of mistakes and got into some bad practices but it was fun and we had a great time. And then when I got to NBC, three years later, they said, do you want a cameraman or a producer? And I said, I want a producer. But I managed to um, work out with Jason Swales that Jason, Jason could film as well. So I got a cameraman and a producer. And so Jason and I went to NBC together and just had five brilliant, brilliant years. You know, um, And NBC were really hard on me because... I, I think they could see there was potential, but that I had learned some bad techniques and some bad traditions just by being left to my own devices. And they were brilliant. They knocked the stuffing out of me for the first few races because they had a certain way that they wanted things to be presented. They had a certain way that they wanted questions to be asked. And actually, it made me, I think, such a better a broadcaster, a better interviewer, because... It was lovely. They gave me a, a DVD of sort of their gold standard interviewers. And they said, look, we wouldn't be giving you this if we didn't think that you could achieve this level. This is what we think you, you, you're capable of doing. And so I, I watched it rigorously, just like, OK, ah, OK, that's what that's how they want it. And uh, it was great. That, that was just a phenomenal few years. One of the things that I, that I really enjoyed when you were doing the NBC coverage was you did the Road 2 series. Yeah. Was that something that you, you kind of brought a journalistic element to and was quite fun to do? And is that something that you think there's, there's mileage in doing more of? Yeah, totally. So the, the great thing with NBC was that we finally had 
they, they gave budget to shoulder content. So we had the Road 2 shows. We had the Off the Grid shows. So so for those that haven't seen it, the Road 2 shows were we did one on Ferrari and one on Mercedes. And it was a road trip across Europe, taking in the history, the stories, the passion of what made the brand the brand. And we'd actually got a road to Honda all lined up, ready to go, that never made it. Which just It was going to be so cool. And it was going to end. I was going to be driving the old NSX around Suzuka. And Jason was going to blast past in the new. That was the closing shot. It's going to be badass, man. It's so cool. Um, but, and, and we're going to have, you know, the, like the cameras in the in the footwell. And I was going to be a pair of Todd's, you know, trying to do the heel and toe center video thing <laughs> but um the loafers but yeah exactly the loafers but and the and the off the grids were kind of travel logs and they were supposed to be a little bit anthony bourdain-esque in that it would be right we're here to race but what else what, what's here and so it would be culture and food and uh, you know all the things that make the global travel of formula one as much fun as it is yes it's about racing but it's about and it was all like, well, here's this little kebab joint that we go to in Manama in Bahrain that's actually down this little back street. And we know the guy's first name and we go down every year and it's the best warmer you've ever had in your life. And this is where it is. Those kind of little things. They were really fun. And all of it was about trying to engage the American audience. And you asked earlier well, you know, what was different about it. We, we realized both at Speed Channel and at NBC, our job wasn't just telling the story of the race. It was about creating a new fan base. And you had to be so careful because you had, and you still do in America, you have a fan base that is knowledgeable and loyal and has been watching this thing since the 1960s, right? They know everything. But you also have fans, particularly now, who are coming in through Netflix, who are coming in through um, what F1 Digital are doing and trying to widen the footprint of Formula One globally. Esports, you're getting people coming in from all realms. Now, they are very new to the sport. So how do you broadcast effectively to people who've been watching it for 50, 60 years and people who've been watching it for five minutes? You have to find a middle ground where you don't dumb it down so much that you annoy the, the diehards, but you don't blind the newcomers with science to the extent that they go, well, I don't understand this. And we were always sort of taught, if you, imagine you're watching it with your, with your kids. If your kids turn around to you and say, what does that mean, dad? And you can't answer the question, you're going to turn off. And that was our, that was our medium. That's, that's what we asked to. And I think, I hope we hit a happy medium. And I guess there's also a challenge with Formula One as a TV spectacle that you've got the world feed. So you've kind of got the 10, 15 minutes before the green light to the podium ceremony. But then you have all that time to fill either side. I think a lot of people don't realise just how little time you probably actually spend at a venue. Yeah. How does the planning work for those features, given that you've probably got some stuff, like you say, that you kind of got in mind that you want to go out and shoot and do whatever. And then when you get on the ground, you start hearing the rumours, you start hearing the stories and what's happening. How does that work editorially in terms of trying to balance all of these things? Well, with, with NBC, we only really ever had about a half hour pre-race show. So a lot of that was news based and not really feature-based. We had some, you know, Sam Posey used to do beautiful essays, um, which were quite sort of the, you know, more feature-led things that we did. Um, 
but certainly making the off the grid shows you know we would want to film a lot of that within an f1 weekend and so you'd have to put your requests in way before time as to the drivers you wanted or a team member that you needed and and remember as well and this was something that that nbc found quite difficult to understand at the start but definitely got it by the end they were very used to being the only dog in town because on an indycar broadcast on a nascar broadcast NBC, SN, or Fox were the sole, not just the host broadcaster, but the sole broadcaster. So they would have number one rights. You know, remember the first time I went and did an IndyCar race uh, with NBC, and I'm standing in pit lane, and I had to interview Will Power, who'd come third. And I'm standing by with him, standing by with him, blah, blah, blah. And they go, okay, and we're going to commercial. And I'm like, what the <laughs> And I'm, I'm, like, I'm, like, I'm standing here with Will Power. And they're just like, yeah, 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 when we come back from commercial. Now, I'm not used to telling a driver to wait because in Formula One, you tell a driver to wait, they're gone because there's, there's 20 broadcasters. <laughs> Again, so getting that mindset turned around for NBC that we were one and actually a very small fish in the pond. Yes, we were US, but that, that didn't actually mean much in the F1 paddock. So to sort of get... Get the mindset around that and that we had to wait in line and we had to get our requests in. And you couldn't just go to Mercedes and say, oh, can we have five minutes with Lewis Hamilton this afternoon? Doesn't doesn't work like that. That was an education. And you do, yeah, you do. with all of these, with Formula One, you have to plan everything six months in advance, which is why at the moment it's all it's also, you know, we had five six months worth of plans and and everything that that were put in for those opening few races and and uh and then you suddenly have to think on your feet <laughs> and broadcast from home but it's yeah it, it's it's such fun it's such fun being a being a part of it and being a pit lane reporter i mean i said it before that f1 always has this kind of secrecy i mean whether it's screens in the pit lane or or dummy parts on the car or whatever but then as a pit lane reporter and particularly when you do paddock pass there seems to be a kind of a mix of reading between the lines and having this kind of very secret yet very leaky, gossipy paddock at the same time. Yeah. If somebody comes to you and says, oh, they went out because they had a gearbox issue, given that you've obviously got the experience and you kind of know people, will you sort of catch a mechanic's eye and be like, gearbox problem, and see if they sort of give you a nod or a shake? or? Yeah, absolutely. You have... You, you, you have enough people that you've known throughout the years that you know will give you a wink or a nod or a yes, it is, no, it's not. You know, for the most part, actually, the, the press officers these days will, will tell you what they know unless it's a really bad thing that they can't let out. Very often, though, they won't be told the full extent of it, so you can't just rely on them. If someone's doing something a little bit naughty, the trick is not to ask the people that are doing the naughty thing. You talk to their rivals. So if you want to know what Ferrari are doing, you go and speak to Mercedes and Red Bull. If you want to know what Renault are doing, you go and speak to Racing Point and McLaren. You know, that's how it works. Because Renault aren't going to tell you what they're up to. But Racing Point and McLaren sure as hell will tell you what they think they're doing. <laughs> and and that's, that's how you get to it. Also, you know, you'd think that with 20 broadcasters or more, Everybody would be very secretive and, and, and hold on to the knowledge that they've accrued and the, the information that they've gathered. But it's not like that. Sky and Channel 4 don't have dinner together uh, in the UK. But 
I was broadcasting to the States. You know, Ted Kravitz would be broadcasting uh, for Sky. Uh, you had Mara, who uh, is broadcasting to the Italians. You had Noemi, who's broadcasting to the Spanish. Uh, Jack's broadcasting to the Dutch. And you pass each other in the pit lane. You go, oh, have you seen down a Haas? Uh, cars up on stands. It looks like it's hydraulics. But brilliant. Thanks. I'll phone it in. So you, you help each other out. You share with each other because if... Davide Valsecchi, for example, has been speaking to Marc Genet at Ferrari and Marc's let something slip to Davide. Davide would tell me. I'd be like, brilliant. That's great. Thanks. <laughs> you, know, you, you have your network. And, and but the, the same is true for journalists. You know, if you are a British journalist and all you do is sit with the other Brits in the media center, you never learn anything. The trick I learned when I was a journalist way, way back in the day from 04 onwards was I would every weekend I would sit with a different group of, uh, of, of, of nationalities. And you would, you'd hear different things coming in and, and different rumors. And then you, you hear that rumor, you hear that little inkling of something, and then you go to get it checked. And when you corroborate it from four or five different sources all coming in, well, then you get a better steer on where you're at. But if you just stay in your little tiny bubble, you only, you only ever get one side of, of what's happening. I know that's something that Joe Sayward's talked about in the past, is the idea of the journalism of having multiple sources, of saying something that you know to be true, or not as the case may be, and not just... I think particularly with these internet times, it's very easy to grab that first rumour to want to be the first to say the thing that then becomes the whatever. Yes. Yeah, it, it is, and that's, that's... We all fall into that trap, you know? Is it better to be first or to be right? It's always better to be right, but sometimes you can't help but because you get excited, you get overexcited, you know, and that's just the I still do it from time to time, you know, and that's just the excited pup in me and and and, and that's why I think was I a good journalist? I don't know. I don't think so. I think I'd like to think I make a better broadcaster because I like to tell stories. I like to and I like and, and the one thing I think that I was really taught at NBC, and it's the difference between Going into an interview as a journalist and going in as a broadcaster is, or certainly for our ends of broadcasting, is that as a journalist, you go in and you already sort of have your idea of what your story is and you need a, a clarification, you need, you need it verified or you need it shot out of the water. So you'd ask very leading questions. But in the, in the pen, post-race or post-qualifying or whatever, if you think that a driver has suffered from some sort of an issue with their tires or whatever and you say oh yeah you, you were suffering with this and that and presumably it was because of this they'll either go yeah in which case you've got a one word answer or they'll say no it wasn't it at all in which case you look like an asshole so you know it's, it, it doesn't help your cause if you just ask the question what was wrong then you get a nice long flowing answer and, I, and that was the thing that NBC taught me was to take myself out of the questions mm. And to just listen and go down whatever path that route was going to take us. And I think that's the best thing with broadcasting. Well, certainly the broadcasting that I try to do, which is to tell their stories, allow them to tell their stories. And then you can you can fill in around the edges. But if the, if the meat is theirs, then you're just adding a gravy. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that analogy. That's, that's, that's good. Because, I mean, one thing that I think about now is you've... Going back, again, going back sort of 20 years, you had Michael Schumacher, you had Mick Hakkinen, who were quite kind of shut down and were, were quite monosyllabic almost in a way sometimes with the media. Whereas now you've got people like, especially like Lando Norris, who are telling their stories yeah. and are not only more happy to share them and they're more eloquent because they're more used to doing it. 
is that something that makes your job easier or are they telling the stories that actually you wanted to tell? Yeah, I mean, the drivers these days are, they're very erudite and they're very, they're very sure and they've been brought up in this media world, you know, and I think maybe Red Bull have, have a lot that we should be thankful for in allowing their drivers to be human beings at a time, you know, I came in, as you say, at a time, you know, Michael was, was winning all his world championships. I remember one of my first, you know, I think, was it 02 he won in bloody France in June? You know, what are we going to talk about for the rest of the year? They were kind of robotic. They were monosyllabic because they had to fit a, uh, a corporate brief. Now, drivers recognize that they are in and of themselves their own corporation that their their personality is their business and the change in the last decade has been huge you talk about daniel you talk about lando i find that the strangest thing is a driver like max who he's a an old school racer like you could have plucked him out of the 60s or 70s but his personality is straight out of the 90s. And it's the personality that I think his dad and his contemporaries were forced to have, which was don't give anything away, be, you know, cold and monosyllabic and all of that. So you have this kind of like robotic personality with this electrifying racecraft. And the two don't fit in this really, you know, sort of amazing new era of, of a relative sort of level of freedom. It really upset me at the end of last year when Lando said, oh, I'm, I'm going to, you know, not be as, as, I didn't say not as personal, but I'm going to have to sort of shut it down a little bit so people don't think I'm not taking it seriously. And that would be a real shame because I think people allowing their personalities out gives us an insight into into who they are. And racing drivers being human beings is, it's part of, I think, bringing in a new generation to understand and, and love these guys because I think the sport had got a step too far away. Um, as you say, you know, when I first got into it, it was closed off. It was, it was the impossible, out of reach and almost out of touch sport. Now we're at an era where drivers want to bring you in and we can bring everyone along, for, hopefully for the ride. If we can show the human side of these guys and, and the gladiators that they are, then going to create fans for life. And what about on the media side? Obviously, we've seen huge changes in F1 with, with Liberty. And I think a lot of organisations, whether it's IMSA, whether it's the ACL or whoever, are adapting to this new world we're in and, and YouTube and, and social media and all these things. Are you seeing people coming through on the media and the commentary side who are bringing something new and you're thinking, these are the next generation, these are the people who are going to come in and what can they achieve beyond what we've seen in, in the last sort of five years it's it's really interesting because you have um you have the two sides of it you know you, you have very traditional guard who uh you know are, are very sort of respectful and have been doing it 30 40 years and then you, you have sort of a, a new young guard and i've said before the person that i was when i first got involved in the sport me now at 40 looking back on him age 22 23 i hate him he was <laughs> cocky and gobby and you know and and yeah uh, but and and, I, and and you see um sort of you know youngsters coming in and, and doing things their way and in my slightly older ways, I'm like they're not taking this. They're not taking this seriously. They're just having a laugh. <laughs> and, 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 um, but maybe I, you know, I'm just, I'm just not, uh, I'm just not 
up to speed with the way in which you know the relatability and the personability and the broadcasting of our sport is is changing and is and is working i think i think the most important thing with all of it and it's something we've always always tried to do is if you're having fun and you're having a laugh have a laugh at your own expense not at the expense of the drivers or the teams because they work tirelessly they are geniuses the drivers are heroes you know and we should be making them heroes so if you're going to have a laugh fine have a laugh take the piss but take the piss out of yourself you're the butt of the joke not them and so long as you do that then i think it's so i think that's it's okay before we wrap up i've got a few quick fire questions to go through um, I'm so bad. I'm, you know, I'm fine at asking questions. I'm terrible at asking. <laughs> Just before we get into these, do you spend a lot of time on planes watching movies and chilling out, yeah. or are you a head down and working sort of guy? God, no. No, I, 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 watch, I watch. So I, I'll give you one story. Um, I usually travel with, with, with Jason, and so we're always watching movies and advising, like, oh, you've got to see this, you've got to see this. Anyway, this one time he said, you've got to see this movie. I was like, what's it called? He said, it's called Top Five. I was just like, okay. It's like Chris Rock. You love it. It's really funny. So it's a bit of a slow burner, so just give it some time. But <laughs> and I sat through this thing and I got to the end and I went, dude, that's the worst film I've ever seen. He said, I know, it's awful. Isn't it? <laughs> and I was like, what? And he says, Well, I'd sat through it. I just didn't want to be the only one that had to sit through it. So so then the next flight he says, Interstellar, you've got to see it. And I didn't believe because I'm just like, oh, it's gonna be like top five, it's gonna be crap. No, you've got to see it, you've got to see it. Anyway, so carries it. It's like, honestly, I'm not joking. You've got to see, it. you've got to see it. So I did it on a really long haul flight and I timed it. I thought perfectly for when we were going to come into land was going to be the ending. And of course I, I forgot having been traveling for 20 years, how I forgot this. I don't know that obviously as you come into land, there's all the bloody messages, put your tray table away and blah, blah, blah. And we were on Emirates. So they're doing it in three different languages. And it's, you know, the bit in, in interstellar and he finds himself behind the bookcase. Mm. That bit is when all the announcements started. It's getting really serious and intense and emotional. And in the end, I ended up like ripping the headphones off my head and throwing it to the side. I was just like, shut up. That <laughs> <laughs> was correct. But yes, no, anyway, I love, love, love movies on plane. What's your favourite car movie of recent years? Uh, uh, Ford versus Ferrari. It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. It's, a, it's, a, it's just great. I'm never into the fast and furious and all that kind of stuff if it's going to be a car movie i'd rather it had some some basis in reality and i thought ford versus ferrari but it's a bloody oscar winner as well now so you know great movie which youtube channel should people be watching other than the f1 channel ah now it's not actually a youtube channel uh it's on vimeo um and it's got its own website but my friend jamie benning runs a a site called filmumentaries so like documentaries okay so doc it's film so filmumentaries and he basically he started uh, it by he wanted to learn how to use premiere pro he wanted to use how to use editing software and so he made a behind the scenes how they made star wars he found historic footage and cut scenes and interviews and put it together and he made it for the original trilogy now he's made all three and they've become these kind of the go-to movies on how they made Star Wars. He's done one for Jaws. Uh, he's done one for Raiders of the Lost Ark. They're brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So filmumentaries, if you are a movie nerd uh, and you love all of that minutiae, go and, go and check his site because they're, they're phenomenal. And we'll put a link to those in the show notes oh. as ever. 
Given a huge budget, what's the documentary film that you would like to make? Oh, man. That's a great question. I, um, I'm a big fan of... Uh, have you seen Jodorowsky's Dune? I haven't. Uh, so it's the, it's the documentary into the greatest movie never made. And that actually... And he created this book um, with... Uh, sketches for every single scene. Uh, Salvador Dali was going to be in it. Mick Jagger, Giga was going to design the aliens, um, and basically all of these influences filtered out into um, uh, Alien and Star Wars and uh, Blade Runner, and you see it dispersing through everything. Anyway, so I don't know something like that. Something about something that was never made. So uh, maybe Kubrick's Napoleon. There you go. The great Kubrick movie that was never made. Was that the one where he had a card index of all of his research and everything all so cross-referenced? Yeah, and- I have the Tashin book, which is a, it's about 10 inches wide, and it's all of the research. It's the photo, and he, he'd gone through, it's, it's scripts, costumes, drawings, you know, Regency drawings from, from the time of the poem, everything. Like, it is a movie sitting there, ready and waiting to go. Which car movie or TV series do you think is worth a reboot? Oh. Or would you like to see more of? Oh, that's a good, that's a great car series. Oh, man. That's really tough. I'm not sure, you know. I'm not sure. Is Rory the racing car still going? I don't know. I don't think it is. That would be good. <laughs> All more tuned. Was Sterling Sterling Moss um, narrated it, didn't he? He so did. They can't have tuned anymore, which is really tragic. And um, they can't have a Rory the Racing. Good old Rory. But um, no, I, do you know what? I don't. I don't. There's got to be one. Hasn't tuned was great. I liked tuned. Tuned was great. Um, oh, I don't know. Maybe we should just leave space for something new and original instead. You should have given me these questions in advance. I could, I could have thought long and hard about it. Um, I'm trying to think of great sort of car-based TV series from when I was a kid. And the only thing I can think of at the moment is, do you remember the, the Pink Panther? Uh, and there was that ridiculous stretch pink car at the start. That's all I can think of at the moment. And while I'm thinking of that, I can't think of anything else. Talk, speaking of uh, big stretch concept cars from the 70s. Yeah. Oh, oh uh, um, Jason the Wheeled Warriors. How about that? Oh. No, I, we, well, yeah, or Thundercats, because they had the Thunder Tank. But they've just, they've just done a new Thundercat. It's really weird, the new Thundercats. Have they? Oh, it's bizarre, man. It's really strange. <laughs> Who should I talk to in a future episode of these series? Oh... What you, oh, I, ah, that's a great question. Davide Valsecchi. Davide Valsecchi is, is, is just about the greatest interview that you'll ever have. He, he's phenomenal. He's completely loopy. Um, he's brilliant racing driver, thoroughly good human being. And, uh, yeah, Davide. Davide or Lee Diffie. Give Lee a call. Lee's, Lee's a, Lee is a great interview because his story, his story goes from selling carrot cake at the roadside to make enough money to jump into a bus to go to his local dirt track to try and get a gig commentating to be the voice of motorsport in America, Olympic coverage, everything. I mean, that guy's story is so inspirational.
Well, make sure to give them a shout. And finally, what's the best way for people to follow what you do? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at WBuxtonOfficial. That's the best way to do it, uh, to follow all my all my crap. You will get very annoyed very quickly <laughs> with the sheer amount of rubbish that, that, that comes your way. But it's all meant with lightness and fun. <laughs> and on that note, thank you very much, Will Buxton. Thank you. It's been fun. <laughs>